before we pray, Jess and Neil, we love y'all. Um, ooh, let's pray. I'm going to read from Psalm 96, verse 1. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Father, we sing this morning because you are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity we have just to sing to you. Because as we're going to learn today and as we're going to see in scripture today, that right to come before you is something that you made possible by your grace, by your mercy. We, we have no right, no entitlement in and of ourselves to approach you. In fact, you are totally and utterly unapproachable for how great you are. But yet we come before you. And I pray, God, this morning from your word, we would get a glimpse of who you are. And, and as the psalm says, that we would tremble before you. Father, this morning I'm, I'm intimately aware of how unqualified I am to speak on such a topic as God. And I pray, Lord, that this uh, sermon, the words that come out of my mouth, would be an, a, a true and accurate reflection of who you are and in no way reflect who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, hey, if you're, if you're new with us, um, welcome. Welcome to CBC Richmond Hill. We say this pretty often, but one of the distinctives we have as a church is that we preach through books of the Bible. It's called expository preaching, if you want the theological term, but we just pick a book. So we picked Acts on August the 7th, and we took 37 weeks, and we preached our way through the book of Acts. So we just preach through books of the Bible. And the reason we do that, and you, you may wonder why, like why is that kind of our, our style? Why is that what we choose to do? It's because we, we believe this to be God's word, uh, that it's authoritative, that it's inspired, that it's without error. And we want you, we want ourselves to live in submission to God's word, to live underneath God's word. So far from teaching my own opinions about certain things, and trust me, I have them, you know, they'll come out every now and then. We want to hear what God's opinion is on all things. Um, we don't want you to, to live in accordance to what I, I, I think. We want you to live in accordance to what God thinks. And, and preaching through books of the Bible gives us an opportunity to not avoid sensitive subjects. Because if it's in there, we, we got to preach it. Uh, instead of coming to something that's challenging, maybe something that's hard to understand, instead of us avoiding that, we just, we just preach it because that's what preaching through the books of the Bible kind of keeps us accountable to doing. But today, we're actually going to take a break from doing that. Um, in five weeks, as Coleman said, we'll pick up an Old Testament book that I'm, I'm pretty excited about and, and looking forward to going through together. But we really thought that this summer, um, really these next five weeks, gives us a unique opportunity to get on the same page about a few things, okay? So we've entitled these next five weeks, Foundations. Um, we have a lot of, of people in the room that are a part of construction, and I learned this week that, generally speaking, a residential home in Georgia needs a foundation that is, that is 12 inches deep. Okay, so generally speaking, a residential home has a foundation that is 12 inches. But there's a principle in engineering or in building that the taller the structure, right, the deeper the foundation has to be. So a residential home may need one foot of foundation, but take the Willis Tower in Chicago, okay? Anybody ever been to Chicago before? I, ha I have not, but I, I Googled this, okay? <laughs> Willis Tower in Chicago has a foundation that is 100 feet deep. 
all right? I have been to Dubai. We've seen the Burj Khalifa, you know, one of the tallest buildings in the world. It has a foundation that's 164 feet below the ground. And then you have the Shanghai Tower in China that has a foundation that is 282 feet below the ground. The principle is stated that the taller the structure, right, the deeper the foundation needs to be. And, and I don't mean to do one of those like Jesus jukes, you know, as a pastor, but, but honestly, when it comes to the structure of our faith, is there anything that could potentially be taller than that? Because our faith actually reaches into eternity. It reaches into the highest heaven. So when it comes to a structure that is that tall, we have got to have a deep foundation to support a structure like that. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, if you've spent the last 37 weeks flipping to the book of Acts, just continue to flip right. You'll get to the book of Romans, and then you'll get to the book of 1 Corinthians. So this is kind of like a, like a, like a series of scripture for us, and really what, what I think God was speaking to me through as, we were, as I was reading this in my personal devotion. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read this in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. All right, let's take a look for a second, okay? As as a church planter, so we planted this church, what, August of 2022? We we were reminiscing this past weekend. That feels like yesterday. Um, it also feels like three decades ago. Um, I have definitely added some gray um, through this process. But, but when we began to plant this church, and, and uh, really as the lead planter of this church, I see Paul's words here as a personal challenge, like as a personal directive. Because what he is saying is the structure that you're building is going to be tested, and it's going to be revealed. And, and, and what I know we want as a church is that the structure of this church, the structure of your individual faith, and the structure of our collective faith, we want it to be a structure that lasts. We want it to be something that survives, that long past us, 100 years from now, that this church is still preaching the foundation that which it was built on, which is Jesus Christ. But when we say, when we say the foundation of Jesus Christ, so Paul says this, right? He says, no, no foundation can be laid other than that which is laid. This is verse 11, which is Jesus Christ. What he's referencing there is the good news of Jesus Christ. Another word for that is the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, that the foundation of our church, the foundation of your faith should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the challenge with just saying it like that is that that we don't have a, a really full or deep enough understanding of what the gospel is. When we say the foundation of Jesus Christ, what usually pops into our mind is, is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, he was born in Bethlehem, that he died on a cross in Jerusalem, and after three days he was rose again. So we talk about the the birth, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we say the good news of Jesus Christ, that's usually the first thing that pops into our mind. But the gospel of Jesus Christ actually goes a little bit deeper than that. It isn't just the work that Jesus came to do, it's it's why, right? Why? We, we, don't, we don't really talk about it. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we never really talk about why he came. Why did Jesus come? 
Because of sin. Right? Because of sin. He came to pay the penalty of sin, to atone for our sin. That's why Jesus came. But that's not quite deep enough either. Because why is sin such a big deal? Yeah. Why is sin such a big deal? That's the question I want us to answer today. I want us to look in the scriptures and go, why is sin such a big deal? I want to, the foundation is Jesus Christ, but, but we got to go a little bit, a layer just a little bit deeper of, of why he came, which is sin. And we got to go just a little bit deeper of why is sin such a big deal? Because sin cost God the Son his life. That's a big deal. And we need to see why sin in the eyes of God is such a big deal. So, if you, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Y'all did not expect me to say that this morning, did you? Second Chronicles. Okay, that's Old Testament. If you're going to flip to the somewhere to the beginning, you'll see first and second Samuel, you'll see first and second Kings, and then you'll see first and second Chronicles. And as you get there, let me continue to lay this out for us, okay? Because the foundation of our faith doesn't begin with you and I. It, it doesn't begin with Jesus' atonement. And I know that sounds blasphemous, but, but just hang in there with me, okay? It actually begins much sooner than that. It actually begins in the beginning. Genesis 1 verse 1 says this, in the beginning was God. God was in the beginning. Our foundation of our faith begins with the person of God, of who God is. In his highly recommended book, I, I really do, I recommend this book, A.W. Tozer writes this in The Knowledge of the Holy. If you've never heard of that book, it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. I'd highly recommend you to purchase that and read it. In 1961, this is what Tozer said in The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most predictive fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. All right, hang in there with me. Listen to this. He continues and says this. A right conception of God is basic to practical Christian living. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. Are you following here? What he's saying is a right understanding of God is the deepest part of our foundation of our faith. That the structure of our faith must be built on a true and accurate understanding of who he is. But when we often talk about building the foundation or building the structure of our faith, we think things like this. We, we go, well, I need it to build my faith stronger. I need to learn to pray. Not a bad thing. A an incredible thing. I would actually encourage you that if you want to build a strong faith, we have got to learn to pray. But often we start learning to pray ignorant of whom it is that we're actually praying to. Or we say things like this. I got to learn to read the word. If I want to grow in my faith, I have got to learn to read the word. You're absolutely true. My heart yearns for every one of us to learn to read this book for ourselves in personal devotion. Yet, sometimes we jump straight into reading the word, ignorant of the fact that it's supposed to be telling us who God is. Not what we're to do primarily, but why we are to do what we to do, which is who God is. Are you following me? So we build this structure of our faith with all these things that we're supposed to do, ignorant of whom it is we're supposed to do it for. The foundation of our faith begins with God. Church, I believe this is one of the reasons our faith as individuals and as a collective society gets so shaky at times, right? We build this massive structure of faith, and at the slightest tremor, maybe that's a hardship, maybe that's a, that's a doubt that gets sowed, maybe that's a, a, a suffering that you're walking through. At the slightest breeze, our structure of our faith begins to wane, begins to totter. 
church, the higher the structure, the deeper the foundation has to be. I wonder if our foundation is just a bit too shallow. Our foundation has to be built on who God is. And I'm going to say something very challenging right here. You and I have no right to dictate who God is. He and he alone gets to tell us who he is. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was communicating with God from a burning bush, right? God appears in this burning bush. He tells Moses, I'm going to use you to set the people free from Egypt. And then Moses says, well, hang on. If I get to Egypt and I see all these Israelites and they ask me, who, who is this God that supposedly spoke to you? What do I tell them your name is? Y'all remember this? Remember what God said? Let me be honest with you, okay? God didn't say, hey, I, I am whoever you need me to be. Right? And, and he didn't say, hey, I am whoever you think me to be. He didn't say, I am whoever you want me to be. He said, I am who I am. But so often, we don't like that God. We don't like who he says that he is. So what do we do? We, we form and fashion an image or an understanding of God that we want. We want him to be, I am who I want him to be. I want him to be, who I am whoever I think him to be. And church, that foundation is not sufficient for your faith. The foundation of our faith has to be built on a proper understanding of who God is. You and I do not have the right to dictate who he is. And often, instead of building on the foundation of who he is, we act just like the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 32, people of Israel were tired of that God because he was scary and he was unapproachable because he would descend on this mountain with fire and with lightning and with clouds, and there was so much mystery surrounding him. So what did they do after Moses was 40 days in that cloud? They went to Aaron and they said, hey, Aaron, get up, make us some gods. And Aaron listened, listen to what Aaron did. He received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf and said, these are your gods, O Israel. These are your gods, and this is what they did, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the next day, Aaron said, tomorrow we shall feast unto the Lord. All right, notice what happened here, okay? And the reason you need to notice this is because we do this all the time, and I'm going to get there in just a second. We don't like this God. We don't want the I am who I am. So we said, hey, make us some gods. And then we attribute this God's works to this God. These are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We attribute the name of this God to this God. He says, yeah, tomorrow we shall have a feast to Yahweh. They use the same name for God and attribute it to a God of their own thinking, of their own imagination. Church, Israel did this over and over and over and over again. I hope you start to see a pattern because we do it all the time too. In Isaiah chapter 46, the people of Israel this time had substituted the great I am for some lesser G gods of Bel and Nebo, these Babylonian gods. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1, God says this to the prophet Isaiah. He says, listen, guys, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Your idols have to be carried on the backs of beasts of burdens. He's pretty much saying, you fool. What are you doing? The gods that you have created and formed and fashioned, the gods of I am whoever you want me to be, you have to carry them. Like what kind of God is strong enough to save you if, if you have to carry them? And then he goes on in verse 5. Listen to this, y'all. God says, to whom will you liken me? To whom will you make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? 
says, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and they make it into a god. And then they fall down and they worship it. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move. If one cries to it, it cannot hear or say. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Over and over and over throughout the history of Israel, people would substitute the great I am for gods that they would form and fashion out of their own imaginations. And God, over and over and over again, would call them back and go, who would you ever compare me to? I am who I am. There is none other beside me. But church, remember, Not only do we create gods of our own images, but we attribute his works and we attribute his name to the gods of our own imagination. It's so easy for us to do, to take a few scriptures and throw it onto the God that we want to be. We do it all the time. Let me me ask you this. Have you ever heard this? Maybe even out of your own mouth, because I know it's in my heart. Well, you know, Pastor, I mean, for me, God is just a God who would never judge. Well, I mean, for me... God is a, a God of love, and, and he, would, he would never punish. I hear this one a lot nowadays. Well, well, God created me with these desires, although these desires are totally contrary to God. He created me with these desires. But why would he ever ask me to deny the desires that he's created me for? We begin to form and fashion. Well, well for, for me, I mean, God is, Jesus is my way. Who's to say, really, that there isn't multiple ways because God, my God, the God I know would never be so exclusive. We do this over and over and over and over again. And we attribute his attributes. We attribute his name. We attribute his works to the gods that we form and fashion out of our own imaginations. Church, we have no right. You and I have no right to dictate who God is. Listen to what Francis Chan says about this. It is, it is so good. He says this, you're telling me that the same mind that possesses adulterous and lustful thoughts is the same mind you use to form and fashion your image of God? He says, the same mind that forgot where your keys were this morning is the same mind that you and I use to form and fashion our understanding of God. Tozer, in his way, hits pretty hard here. He says, guys, a, a God begotten in the shadows of your own fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness to the true God. He says, let us be aware, lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized peoples are therefore free from it. No, no, no. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. You hear that? The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Church, it's these perverted notions of who God is that we create in our own imaginations because we don't want who he says that he is. We want whoever we want him to be. That is the essence of idolatry and is that type of thinking that has left the structure of our faith unstable. It's not a good foundation. We have to get back to scripture, y'all. That's why I told you to go to 2 Chronicles. We got to get back to scripture. We have to rediscover who God says that he is. You, you thought I f- forgot about Chronicles, didn't you? I didn't. Okay, just, just, we're actually going to get there. Before I do, let me say this. This study of God, this, this endeavor to try to understand who he is has been deemed for centuries as the study of the attributes of God. You ever heard that? 
the attributes of God. But before I even attempt to explain one single of God's attributes, let me read Romans eleven thirty three for us. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. When we approach a subject like the attributes of God, we have got to come aware that you and I could spend all of eternity just attempting to understand one of his attributes and only scratch the surface. You could spend all of eternity trying to comprehend the God that is the great I am, and, and we couldn't even scratch the surface of one of his attributes. But this is what is so good about the God we serve. Even though that's true, he, in his mercy and in his grace and in his kindness, has chosen to reveal parts of who he is so that we can know him. Isn't that amazing? We have a God that's not distant, that's not aloof. He has chosen to reveal who he is so that we can know him. So I am going to try from Scripture to explain one of his attributes, and that is the holiness of God. One attribute. Now, now let me say this about God's holiness. In no way does God's holiness, like, supersede his other attributes. I'm not choosing holiness because it is the most powerful of his attributes or the greatest of his attributes. Like, God is love. God is mercy. God is faithful. There are so many of his attributes. I'm only choosing holiness because we will never appreciate the foundation that is Jesus Christ until we can understand the holiness of God. Okay? And when we understand the holiness of God, it will actually magnify all of his other attributes. You will actually begin to see, maybe for the first time, how merciful he is when we understand his holiness. We'll actually begin to see the breadth and the depth of how loving he is when we can understand his holiness. So, what an endeavor, the holiness of God. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Look at verse 5. Uzziah, being the 16-year-old king, set himself to seek God's and God in the day of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God for as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. All right, let's take a break for a second. Uzziah has been named king of Judah at the age of 16. And in wisdom, there's this man named Zechariah who's going to walk alongside Uzziah to teach him about the fear of God, to teach him who God is. And as long as Uzziah applies himself to the knowledge of God, God is going to make him prosper. And what we know from Scripture is that for 52 years, Uzziah prospered. What a reign. For 52 years, Uzziah sought to know God and to follow God, walking in the fear of God. And he prospered until the very end of his life. Look at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. All right, let me pause for a second, okay? You have the temple, which is the physical structure that would host and, and contain the presence of God, the very presence of God. And God had orchestrated it so that the, chief, the, the tribe of Levites would be priests who could come into the presence of God and light incense before him. So one particular type of people can come into the presence of God to light incense. But you could not just choose that for yourself. You couldn't appoint yourself to the position of priest. That was something that God and God alone could do. But Uzziah, probably thinking, man, it's been, a, it's been a good 52 years. 
I've sought the Lord. I've done all that I could. I've followed him. I want to go into his presence. He steps into the presence of God. And the priests recognize that's a big no-no. You cannot presume to come into the presence of God. And they begin to rebuke Uzziah. But look at verse 19. Instead of receiving that rebuke and, and repenting and, and being confessing that sin, he was angry. And he had a censer in his hand to burn the incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Church, this chapter ends with Uzziah dying from leprosy, totally separated from all people, living the rest of his life unclean. After 52 years of serving and leading and following, he presumes upon the presence of the Lord and steps to a place where he has no right to step. And he dies from leprosy. Now, if you're human, and I hope I'm not the only human here, I read stories like this in Scripture, and I think, geez, man, that's a little harsh. <laughs> Do you not? I mean, you read across stuff like this, and you're like, 52 years? Does 52 years not account for anything? 52 years of seeking God, studying the fear of God? making a mistake out of his pride and costing it his life. I read stories all throughout Scripture like this, and I think, that seems a little harsh. Reminds me of 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant, which was another symbol that would go into the Holy of Holies. It would step into the presence of God. It was believed to be the throne of God, the mercy seat of God. So when God would descend on his, his temple, he would sit upon the Ark of the Covenant and rule and reign in his glory and his majesty. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. David, being the king that really sought the Lord, wanted it back. So he began to bring it back into the city of Jerusalem, and there was this man named Uzzah. Great name, you know, all you pregnant moms in the room, you know, Uzzah would be a great choice. Uzzah sees the Ark of the Covenant wobble, sees it begin to fall off. He reaches out his hand to steady it. You know what happens to him? Struck dead. Jeez, man. Like he's just trying to help. Like it's just, it's falling, and he's just trying to steady it, and he's struck dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. It reminds me of what we studied in Acts, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They had sold a piece of property. They brought the proceeds to the church, and they said, yeah, we sold it for 300K. But they had only sold it, you know, well, they had actually sold it for 400. They just kept 100 for themselves. Struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. I, I read that, and I'm like, they still gave 300K? You know, I'm not calling anybody out, but I hadn't seen that yet, you know? <laughs> and, and you think, you know, it's like, they still gave. All they did was tell a little lie. Cost them their life, struck dead in a moment. We read stories all throughout Scripture like this, and doesn't that leave you wondering, like, good gracious, that's harsh, isn't it? What, ab what about that God that is love? I don't like, I don't like this God. He's a, little, he's a little rough. Y'all, if we have that reaction, if we react and go, that seems a little harsh, it reveals how little we know about the holiness of God. It reveals how shallow our thinking of God is. Church, he is holy, and he is who he is. He is not who we want him to be, who we think him to be, who we wish him to be. He is and will always be who he says that he is. So what is holiness anyway? 
Holiness is probably one of the most difficult of his attributes to define, largely because it's something we don't share with him. Right, so we were created in the image of God. In the image of God, we are created, which means that we have the capacity to share some of the attributes of God with God to a much lesser degree, of course, right? To a much lesser extent, but, but we can love because he is love. We can be merciful. He is merciful. We can be faithful. He is faithful. But you cannot in and of yourself have any holiness at all. Any holiness you share is in direct relation to your relation to Jesus Christ. There is nothing inherent in us that shares the holiness of God. In fact, holiness is something that separates God from all of creation. In fact, the Hebrew word throughout the Old Testament for the holiness of God means to separate. It is his otherness. It is his majesty. In fact, most people believe his holiness to be synonymous with his majesty. Listen to what Burkhoff, that's a great word, L. Burkhoff wrote the book called Systematic Theology. We talk about God's holiness, and he says this. I think it's incredibly helpful to understand his holiness. He says, God's holiness can be thought of as his absolute unapproachability. Church, it is his awful majesty that when seen or when tasted or when perceived, it awakens in you an absolute sense of nothingness. It awakens you a fierce abasement. You will immediately become aware, I am unworthy to stand before this God. I am unworthy to approach him. I am unworthy to look on him. Church, his holiness is so great that when people in Scripture get a glimpse of it, if they don't die, they immediately hit their face in fear and in trembling. And when I say fear and trembling, I don't mean awe and respect. Right? We don't like a God that we have to fear. So let's redefine what fear means. It means awe. No, no, no. It means sheer panic. If you were to see God, let me be clear, if the roof of this building was ripped off right now and you got just a glimpse of the holiness and the majesty of God, your wishes before God, your desires that you want him to meet and to sustain would be vaporized. You would have no thought other than I must hit my face before this God. And if you don't think that is what you would feel, be careful that we haven't created this God that is a little bit more approachable, a little bit more digestible, a little bit, little bit more sensible to my taste and my desires. Church, his holiness is what separates him to the point where his, his buddy Moses, his mo Moses' buddies who would speak to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend, said, I want to see your face. And Moses says, ah, man can't see my face and live. It's too great. So when you approach me, Moses, you better take them, them shoes off. You're stepping on some holy ground right now. This is why, church, after 52 good years, Uzziah was consumed, broke out in leprosy, and died a horrible death because he presumed to abruptly and nonchalantly step into the presence of God, a place he was unworthy to come. And, church, we do it all the time, too. We, we don't want that God. We, we want a, a genie. Just call it for what it is. We want a genie and a lamp. That whenever I need him, I can rub and, and, and wish whatever it is that I want. We, we want a divine personal assistant, right? Someone that I can request of and make my life just a little bit happier. Church, that's not who he is. He is who he says he is. He is not what you want him to be or not what you wish him to be. Turn now with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Keep going right in your Bibles. 
And, and, I, and I say that really, really without joking. Um, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, if you're new to this whole, this whole I want to learn who God is thing, this, this is your manual. This is our textbook. I, I want you to have one of these. I want you reading one of these. I want this word in your head. We say it all the time. We want it in your hands. We want it in your head. We want it in your heart. So if you don't have one of these, we have one for you, okay? They're sitting right outside on the table out front. As you walk out, pick one up. It's for you. We, we want this in your hands. So there is zero shame to looking into the table of contents to figure out why Isaiah is. Zero shame, okay? But Isaiah chapter 6, this is what we read. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. All right, hang on now. How did Uzziah die? He presumed to step into the presence of God, walked in nonchalantly, and he was struck dead with leprosy. Okay? In the year that King Uzziah died, let's keep reading. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. All right, picture the scene, y'all. Really use your imagination here. The roof has been ripped off. And Isaiah looks up, and he sees the great I Am sitting on his throne, and the simple train of his robe has totally filled the temple. Look at verse 2. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. All right, let me explain this, okay? Seraphim, angelic beings who were standing before the presence of God continually. In the book of Revelation, we see the seraphim standing before the presence of God. But how are they standing? With two wings, they're covering their face. With two wings, they're covering their feet as if to say, I am totally unworthy to be in the presence of this God. The angelic beings are covering themselves. They're concealing themselves to say, I am unworthy to stand before this, this being. And not only that, what do they do? Look at verse 3. They're calling out to one another, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim are concealing themselves because they can't see the holiness of God. And to make sure they're reminding themselves of how great he is, all they're doing is saying one thing over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is this God. Church, this is huge. We have got to understand something about the, the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language uses repetition to create emphasis, okay? Throughout Scripture, we see the use of repetition to communicate a superlative. So in 2 Kings chapter 25, you'll read this, this phrase, pure gold. You'll see pure gold in 2 Kings 25. In the Hebrew, that's not pure gold. It's gold gold. You would use repetition to emphasize something that, that is absolutely true of that. Jesus did it. Jesus would come to his followers and say, truly, truly, I tell you, or verily, verily, I tell you. He's saying, y'all, this ain't just true. This is true, true. Like you can bank on this. It's emphasizing something by using repetition. Did you know, though, that in Scripture there is only one thing that is repeated, not twice, but three times? One. Holy, holy, holy. It's almost as if we can't even say it enough. It is so true of who he is. We're just going to continue to repeat it. And it's so great. We can't even fathom it. Just keep repeating it. Just keep saying it over and over again. Because it continues to express the emphasis of how true to his essence God is in terms of his holiness. Church, he's holy. Listen to what R.C. Sproul, he wrote a book called The Holiness of God. He says the Bible doesn't say God is holy. He doesn't say he's holy, holy. He says he is holy, holy, holy. He doesn't say he's love, love, love. He doesn't say he's mercy, mercy, mercy. He says he is holy, holy, 
holy, a dimension of God that is so totally true of his essence. It says he is utterly unapproachable. He is so great and so distinct, we cannot come near him. And look at verse 4 with me. Keep reading. When these seraphim, when his, when his throne busts into the scene, the seraphim are crying out, holy, the foundations of the threshold began to shake at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. There's a shaking that takes place when you see the holy of holies. There's a, sh- a shaking. The foundations, so to speak, are shaking because the house is filled with the glory, with the majesty, with the holiness of God. And look at what happens to Isaiah. Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Y'all, it's not just the foundation of the temple that's shaken that day. Isaiah is totally undone. He is totally shaken because in the presence of the holiness of God, you will immediately recognize the seriousness of your sin. When you step into the holiness of God, you begin to get a picture for how holy he truly is. The seriousness of your sins will fall on you, will weigh you down. You will only be able to hit your face and be broken and undone before a God that is so utterly unapproachable like this. Church, this is why sin is such a big deal, because God is so holy. I I see all the time in my own life, in, in your lives, I see us grieved over sin, right? We get caught up in sin, we get grieved, but, but usually our grief, it's not, it's not deep enough. Usually our grief is driven by the consequences our sin has created for others. Right? I sin and it, it impacts my family, and I'm grieved by that. I, I don't like that the consequences of my sin are impacting my family. I, I sin, and, it, and it's impacting my conscience. It's weighing me down. It's this burden. I don't like the consequence of that sin and the way it's weighing me down. Church, have you ever thought about how much of an affront to the holiness of God, your sin is. It's got to get deeper. Our, we, we think about our sin in terms of other people. It's deeper. Your sin before the holiness of God will leave you undone. That's where true repentance is found. That's where life change will be found. The only proper response to the holiness of God and the awareness of your sin is exactly what Isaiah does. Throw yourself on your face and say, I am undone before you. Do we respond that way? So often, wh- what I think we do is we begin to justify. I mean, I mean, I'm not as I'm not as bad as these people. Do you think that that will stand before God like this? Or you know, it was just a little lie. It's just a little too much drink. It's just a little pornography. It's just a little. You you fill in the blank. You think that's going to stand before a God like this? The only option we have, y'all, is to throw yourselves on your face and say, "I'm undone before." Do we believe in this God? Or do we apologize for him? Right? Because that's a temptation, isn't it? To go, that seems too much. That, that seems a little too much. That doesn't seem like the God that I know. Church, no, no, he is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. We have no right to dictate who he is. And y'all, he is holy. So I'm going to leave us there. I'm going to leave us before the holiness of God because I think we all need a little bit more reverence, a little bit more fear as it comes to the, the person of God. Tozer says this. He says, a Christian is strong or weak depending on how closely he has cultivated a knowledge of God. Proverbs would say this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
You want to live a life that is wise. You want to live a life, a, a structure. You want to have a structure of faith that will last, that will survive. It begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with the knowledge of who God is. And I'm going to leave you there. So you're just going to have to come back next week. Memorial Day weekend. You're just going to have to come back next week and actually hear how God has made it possible for you and I to approach him. Because he has. He is so holy you can't approach him. But he is so merciful and so gracious and so kind and so loving that he has made a way for you to approach him. That's all next week. But, but I think we've got to understand this first. We've got to understand this holiness. So here's how we're going to close today. We're going to sing the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And I'm going to pray for us that we would get a real vision of who he is. So why don't you stand up with me? You can close your eyes. And I'm going to pray for us as we go into this, this final song. One of the verses of this song says, Holy, holy, holy. Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee perfect in power, in love, and in purity. Father, this morning we come to you totally undone. Woe are we, for we are lost. We are men and women of unclean lips, and we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for our eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Father, give us eyes to see who you are so that we can truly accept and worship you for how good you are. Thank you for your mercy and the great gift that was your son, holy Jesus Christ. May we get a glimpse of your holiness so that we can actually appreciate his sacrifice for all of eternity. Amen.